The one secret that I have found, it's not brains, it's the willingness to work. Welcome to a very special episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, recorded live at the Evolve Virtual Summit. This episode features a brand new conversation with the very first guest of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast and the CEO of America's largest injury firm, John Morgan. When I look around my firm and around the offices in America, when I look at the most successful people, they're the people in the office. They're the people trying the cases. They're the people working on the weekends. The common denominator for the most successful people that I know in my life is not that they were the smartest, is they were the hardest working. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with John Morgan to discuss his early experiences that shaped his vision, the importance of having an insatiable appetite for success, and why you should ignore the naysayers. When people tell you you can't, that just means they can't. That doesn't mean you can't. That just means they won't. It doesn't mean you won't. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Welcome back for day two of the Evolve Summit. We're going to kick it off. I mean, we're going to kick it off with a bang. I'm honored to have John Morgan here. This is going to be exciting. Um, so everyone who's joined us this morning, I mean, John, we, we put you first because you get everybody right back in here. That, that, was, that was intentional. I know why you make so much money because... You're giving out these little bitty bottles of water. I mean, it's some bitch is saving money right and left here with this little bottle of water. But <laughs> we were just saying, drink slowly. I got, right? Yeah, I'm going to drop by drop. There you go. So when you and I did that first podcast, interestingly enough, that day, I think the president declared the state of emergency. All this stuff was happening. And I'm just curious, how's, how's the past year been for you? Well, the past year has been, you know, I'm, I'm in all sorts of different businesses. I'm in the attraction business and hotel business. So that part of my life was decimated. The pandemic, we really looked at it as in three phases. One, we looked at surviving the year, preparing for the pause, and then being ready for after the pause. So last year we had a good year, but we're really having a good year now because we were really focusing on getting the trials ready for when the courts opened up. So I'm not unhappy considering when it happened, if somebody had told me, here's the deal, you're just not going to make any money this year, I would have said, okay. But it turned out I made some. Now, what was interesting to me right out of the gate when you and I first spoke and we were doing the podcast, this, I got to give you credit where, where credit's due. So we had to ship you a laptop to do this podcast because I learned when you were in Hawaii that you were essentially running the law firm from an iPad. I was. And you sent it to me, and thank God one of my children was there, because if one of my children had not been there, we would not have had the podcast. And uh, yeah, I was running a law, a law firm with an iPad, two iPads. I want to dig in. I mean, we've got a lot of people here. I'm sure some love you, some may not love you as much, but I want to dig in because I want to make sure this is going to be valuable for them. In that introductory video, you talk about the difference between a lion and a sloth. 
And I remember you told me the story a, a few months back, but I'd love to, if you could share it with, uh, with our audience here. Well, you know, first of all, a lot of life is just luck. We're born in America. We were born with a certain drive. Some of us were born with it. Some of us were born without it. And every day in the jungle, a lion is born, a sloth is born. A sloth is screwed from the beginning because they really do two things or three things. They eat, they sleep, and they poop. The lion can be six months old and walk into this studio and me and you are running for cover. He or she's the king or the queen of the jungle. So that's just part of life and luck. I have found the people you have here back in the green room, there's a lot of lines back there. And they've been lines for a long, long time. I remember when you first said this to me, I, I almost challenged you on it in the question of like free will. So you, you say some have it, some don't. There is, I agree with you, a degree of luck. But what if somebody just wants to be better? How far can they actually take it? How far can they take their own development, their own capabilities? Because they may say, hey, I want to be John Morgan, but they may not have, as, as you wrote in your book, You Can't Teach Hunger. No, you can't. I've always been fascinated with paper boys. And I'll tell you why I've been fascinated with paper boys. Paper boys are 10, 11, 12 years. They don't even have paper boys anymore, but you're 10, 11 years old and you're tied to this job every day, rain, sleet, snow, grouchy customers, bad customers, but you do it every single day. Those paper boys, I believe, are lions. They have that internal it. Warren Buffett was a paper boy. Oprah Winfrey was a paper girl. When I meet people, especially my age, I'll say, can I ask you a question? I'll say, what? I said, were you a paper boy? Were you a paper girl? And when they tell me they were, it's like my own little Briggs-Meyer personality test. I know who I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with a lion or not. And so that is the internal thing. And it's just as lucky as being Shaquille O'Neal and being seven foot two and run like a gazelle. And I imagine it's probably going to lead to a very frustrating, difficult life if you're not that person, but you try to be, if the sloth tries to be the lion, right? But here's the great thing. There's also another animal and they're mules. There's the hardworking mule and there's the lazy mule. The hardworking mule, you put that hat up on the ears and the ears stick out, the daisies, and that mule can plow all day long. And then you got another mule who's built the same way but won't do anything. The one secret that I have found, it's not brains, it's the willingness to work. Nobody that I know that's very successful has not been a hard worker. And so if you think you're missing something, put the time in. When I look around my firm and around the offices in America, when I look at the most successful people, they're the people in the office. They're the people trying the cases. They're the people working on the weekends. The common denominator for the most successful people that I know in my life is not that they were the smartest, is they were the hardest working. So you can actually work yourself to where you want to be even if you're a mule, because mules can work for 10 hours. And at the end of the day, there's this beautiful field 
that produces a whole bunch of vegetables. I remember in that you can't teach hunger. You talk about there's some that go, you know, coming out of the weekend, they come back as satiable slugs. And then there's others that are just constantly insatiable. You ask them, when are you done? They're not done. When is it enough? It's never enough. There's two types of people. And, and here's the problem inside of our firms. Inside of all of our firms, you have you, and then you have the people inside of your firm. You have one business objective. The people working with you or for you have another objective. Now, their objective may not be what your objective is. Their objective may be, I got to work this hard, get this much, and then I want quality of life. And almost everybody has a limit of satiability. If I get that, I'm done. Most people, I'd say 95% or more, have a satiable appetite. But then there's that rare bird that has an insatiable appetite. And no matter what they have, they want more. And it's not about money because you can only eat one cheeseburger and drink one Maker's Mark. Your pockets are bulging, but you can't eat more than one cheeseburger and one Maker's Mark. It's about winning. It's about succeeding. It's about being respected. And so what I'm always looking for inside of all of my organizations are those people who have that insatiable appetite that they're never going to stop because they want to be successful, respected, and revered. And in your other books, so the, the first one is you can't teach hungry. The second, you can't teach vision. Maybe the third one will be around luck, right? But it's you can't teach any of this stuff, it seems. But I want to ask you about the vision piece, because was there a certain point in your life where... You had the first vision or, I mean, I imagine that, you know, at birth, it wasn't you know, the vision you have today, but how did that vision start? How did it you know, grow and develop? First time I realized that I had to take care of myself. I gave a speech to some inner city children a couple of days ago. And the last thing I said to them was this, believe in you, because at the end of the day, only you are going to take care of you. I was 10 years old, family was poor. Both parents drank way too much. I go to the dentist and I hear my dad talking to the dentist. He said, well, we can do a root canal or we can pull it. And my dad said, well, how much is it? He said, root canal is $50, pull it's $5. My dad said, well, I guess we're going to have to pull it. First of all, I knew then I was fucked because even though I was 10 years old, I knew what permanent teeth were. I knew I was fucked. And then the dentist came in, pulled my tooth, put a bunch of gauze in. I'm driving home. I pulled the gauze out. I think, this son of a bitch pulled three teeth. Was, the, the gap was so big. I went into my house. I saw my brothers and sisters. They're all sitting there. I knew they were fucked too. But that day was a big day for me. I'll tell you why, Mike. That was the day that I remember that I got to rely on me. And that was the day. I went and got my paper out. And then I started building my paper out. And by the time I finished, one time we had to move from Kentucky to Florida, I was making $300 a month, which was gigantic money way back when. And so I would say that, that I had that seed, I had that it, whatever it was. And to this day, the tooth is still not here. And I'm okay with that because that tooth not being here 
I think keeps me insatiable and has been as bad as it was is a constant reminder. And I have a fear of being stuck and not being able to have my teeth taken care of. Good news is my dad got fired all the time. Every time he'd get fired, he'd tell all of us, be a professional. Nobody can fire you. So I got two brothers that are dentists. I may have veneers by the next time I come up here and see you. I love it. So then there's law firms and then there's Morgan and Morgan, uh, the, the largest personal injury firm in the nation. What was the point where like the big catalyst where things really took off? Was there a certain decision, a certain investment, a certain risk that you took where it just, you know, at that point, it just, it became something very different. Well, on my tombstone, I'm either going to have, I told you I was sick, but it's probably going to be grow or die. That's how I've lived my, my life in business, my life in law. And I believe if you're not growing, that you're dying. And so the way I've grown it is I've grown it geographically and I've grown it practice-wise. We had a verdict in New York City this week in the courtroom where they filmed 12 angry men against Major League Baseball for millions and millions of dollars. And that case came from my business trial group. I decided the 21st century law firm needed to be more than just injury case. So we do business on contingency. We represented a bunch of guys from Beverly Hills Sports Council who got screwed by Major League Baseball. So if I'm not growing geographically, then I'm growing vertically with different practice areas. And so what happens is nobody could have ever planned it. Nobody could have ever, I would never would have seen this coming. But then you wake up because your mantra has been grow or die and you've grown this way and you've grown that way. And then one day you wake up with white hair and 800 lawyers and 4,000 employees at the law firm. If I had to go back and tell you how it happened, I don't know if I could really tell you, but it did. And I ha I'm happy it did. You know, another thing we talked about was that, that paranoia. I I'm sure there's some people watching thinking that if they get to a certain point, a certain level that that paranoia might go away. And maybe it does for certain people. Maybe they get content. But from our conversation, it sounds like, I don't know if you're still waking up with the cold sweats, but it's, it still seems like that, that grow or die mentality is still with you. I still have dreams where I'm broke. I've lost my car. It's this, that recurring dream about failure. You know, there's good luck and bad luck. My bad luck early on was that we were poor. And that we were hopeless, helpless, and powerless. But the good news about that, the bad luck turned out to be good luck because those tastes of hopelessness and powerlessness and helplessness, you never forget those tastes. And I believe that, that what happened to me as a kid is why I keep having these dreams. When I wake up from those dreams, sometimes my heart's beating real fast and I don't have my car and I'm walking, and I'm not John Morgan anymore, but I am John Morgan. I'm just a broke-ass John Morgan. And when you wake up, you're so happy to wake up. You're so happy that you were dreaming because it's not a dream. It's a nightmare. Yeah. You're humble in this respect, but I, I promised I would dig. So I want to give them an idea of, of the scale at which you're operating today. If you could just share, I mean, what's it looking like in terms of number of cases per month, the marketing spend, like the, the number of, of staff, attorneys, even fees, just so people can just kind of, you start wrapping their heads around that. 
3 million people will, uh, 1.5 people have already requested representation through June. We're on trend to do over a billion dollars in settlements and verdicts. Your margins get better with size because there's so much that's fixed. The only thing that's not fixed are attorney bonuses, but rent's fixed and advertising budget all in is about $160 million. That's everything. That's social out of all this. And my margins are pretty good. There's 4,000 people. There's 800 lawyers. We have a lawyer in every state in the country. And uh, we just opened up, hired a real great lawyer out of Denver that is going to head up our toxic tort litigation. And that's, again, another area that I'm not growing geographically, but I'm growing vertically. And we're real happy because after the pandemic, we spent so much time getting ready for after the pause that when we're trying cases, there's sometimes in some of our cities, we're the only law firm on the docket because we didn't take the bullshit money when everybody was scared. We kind of held off our best cases. Usually every month we try to verdict 30 to 40 cases a month. And we probably settle another 70 or so the Friday before or during jury selection. My son, Matt, had one last week, 250 policy. They offered us a million. We said no. They offered us a million five. We picked a jury. We got ready to give opening. We settled it for 2.5. So that's not a verdict. Every month we try or get a settlement during the trial. But we lost those 100 cases during the pandemic because we held tight. The good news is we're ready. We've been working those cases up during the pandemic. We were preparing to keep running the business, but also running the business after the pause. I know you mentioned your son, Matt. I, I see him posting continuously just about the fact that you've got to try cases. Insurance companies were coming for you. I love that you brought the family into the business. Obviously, you must be proud of your children. What are your thoughts and any recommendations to people watching that want to really get their family involved and, and get them into the business? I know this doesn't work for everyone. Well, look, who do you love the most? Who do you want to be with the most? We only get so much time. The one thing we can't buy is time. And so I made a decision early on, and some people send their kids out to be a state attorney or go to do insurance defense. I don't ever want my kids doing insurance defense. I'd rather them, you know, be running a strip club than doing insurance defense. I just cannot imagine fucking people over for a living. I've done it, and it's worked for me. And I was worried because you don't know. When, you, when your kids are little, you know, when Matt, for example, I worried about Matt because he's a surfer who smoked a lot of weed. So you're like, what's he going to be like? Well, it turns out he was a lion, had a driver, a personality, and as mellow as he is, he's the greatest surfer guy. But if you get between Matt and his money, he can become a real vicious son of a bitch. And so my kids have all turned out. I mean, I wasn't great in school. My wife was real good, real smart. But it all turned out some days, my daughter, Kate, has a structured settlement business. Some days in my office, the last thing that happens in my day is my four children and my wife sometimes were all sitting in my office eating M&M, peanut M&Ms and drinking Coke. I'm 65 years old, so I know I may not be in the fourth quarter, but I'm either in it or next to it. 
if I'm going to be in the fourth quarter, I want to be doing things that are significant, but I also want to be doing it with my family because that's who I, that's who I want to be with the most. I know you talked about like the different uh, businesses you're involved in, just the diversification. I, I read at one point when you were first getting into the attraction business that your wife wasn't exactly on board with this initially. Uh, she couldn't understand it. But if you kind of speak to how you got involved in that, the, kind of the Wonderworks business, which I was intrigued to learn that uh, you're involved because now it seems like that was a very good idea, but just how you've diversified even outside of law. Here's the thing. I don't golf. I don't fish. I don't hunt. People out there shooting deer, I don't even like the taste of deer. I can taste the fur. I'm like, hell, I can't eat this shit. So I don't do those three things. That's what seems what everybody does. And so what I have made my hobby was my family and business. And so I had this fair business, and I saw these interactive things on the fairground. And I said, you know, you go to a science center, and it's boring as hell. I take my kids to the science center. They were, you know, running up and down the hallways. They were doing nothing. I said, but what if I built an attraction? Everything was interactive. And so I had a guy on the fairground in our fair circuit, and he had these interactives. And so, and then somebody brought me this picture of this huge house turned upside down. And I'm like, wow. Because I believe if you just build a square box, that's one thing. But if you build a house that looks like it just crashed down, that the moths will come to the flame. If I could just get a nickel for every picture that's been taken of Wonderworks, if anybody is watching this today, if you Google the 10 most interesting buildings in the world, one of them will be Wonderworks. I believed I had to go full board. So I built the house upside down then I put the exhibits in. The first one I built was in 1997. I have seven of them now. They print money because there's no cost of goods. There's hard to steal from you. And people love it. And the great thing about the business, you go there, people are having the time of their life. And if somebody comes to the gate and says, we were unhappy, here's my refund policy. I look at the ticket. If they were in there for less than an hour, I just refund the money. If they were in there for four hours, I say, get the fuck out of here. You're trying to screw me. Because it's great because in law, we're fighting all day. We're fighting to get cases. We're fighting the insurance company. We're fighting the defense lawyers. But at Wonderworks, and I've got another one called Alcatraz. I'm getting ready to open up this summer. You know Guy Fieri. The, so I'm, we got a concept we're doing together called Flavortown. It's going to be like a Dave and & Buster's and Pigeon Forge. So I'm interested in that. So my hobby, golf, I don't get. When, listen, when Tiger Woods is hitting the ball in the water, I'm not interested in that sport. Shooting deer, where I live, I can sit in my pool and kill deer. I can just sit with a pistol and kill deer from my pool, so I don't find that to be a sport. And fishing, fish and release, I've never understood that. So if I want fish, I just go down to the fish store and get some fish. So I don't find any of those hobbies interesting. But I find this, I built a thing called Alcatraz East. It's the history of crime and punishment. I have OJ's Bronco. I have Ted Bundy's VW. I have Bonnie and Clyde death car from the movie. I have, I'm putting that, all that collection together. If you Google Alcatraz East in Pigeon Forge. So it's almost instead of collecting stamps, you know, my little friend, Al Pacino is my little friend. I own that gun. Say hello to my little friend. So it's it's a hobby. It keeps me occupied. But what a great hobby because you get to make money at the same time. 
you had an early job, I think, as uh, Pluto, right, at, at Disney World. Could you imagine that? I did Magic at Disney. I was Pluto at Disney. I loved Disney. I loved Walt Disney. I met Roy Disney one night when I was doing Magic at Merlin's. He came in, and I said, where do you stay when you come here? And he points out, I was at Merlin's Magic Store, and he points out of the castle, and he says, I stay there. I go, where? He goes, Walt built us an apartment there. I said, Mr. Disney, I can't believe I'm meeting you. He says, John, don't call me Mr. Disney. Call me Roy. I said, why? He goes, call me Roy. And I decided that night at Merlin's Magic Shop, if I ever had a business, nobody would ever call me Mr. Morgan. Everybody called me Don. So anytime anybody tries to call me John or Mr. Morgan, no go. It's If, if Walt Disney can be Walt, I can be John. And I loved working at Disney. The best thing about it, like, when I was Pluto, and I'd be standing at Main Gate, tram, the, the monorail's coming at the beginning of the day, and you look up, and here comes grown men in sandals, running, full tilt, you know, knocking kids down to come take a picture with Pluto and Mickey. The, and the first day we had the VIP unit out there. All day long, you're working with people who are having the single best day of their entire life. They've come to Disney World. So I loved that. And so I was inspired by uh, by Walt Disney and my time at Disney World. So you mentioned Roy Disney. So Walt, the visionary, he had Roy. Do you have a Roy? I have a Roy. My wife is very smart. I kind of consider her my Roy. The only thing that she has not understood yet is she thinks she has an absolute veto on everything. And so our fights come from I'm looking for advice I'm not looking for a veto. So whenever we clash, but I rely on her. And, and yeah, look, if you read a book a long time ago called The Millionaire Next Door, it takes two guys that make the same amount of money, but at the end of their life, one has a lot of money and one doesn't have a lot of money. The one thing you find about the people who have a lot of money, rule number one, stay married. When you start cutting shit in half, you, you, lose, you, lose, you lose half. The Millionaire Next Door always relied on professionals, CPAs and lawyers. And even though we're lawyers, we're not that kind of lawyer. So I rely heavily. So I got a whole team of Roy's around me. In, in terms of other causes, I, I know now you've expanded uh, in Florida, really pushing for raising the minimum wage and then the legalization of marijuana. So those, I know those are things you're very, very passionate about. If you kind of speak to, speak to those, and then I want to talk about the, the pot daddy stuff. First of all, I think politics is broken. My wife's Republican. I was a Democrat. I look at the left. They're crazier in hell. I look at the right. I mean, listen, when people are wearing buffalo hats with horns, I'm out. What I believe is that most of us agree about most things. You know, I was polling real high. They all, everybody wanted me to run for governor. I was polling real high. But, you know, I don't want to get chewed up like that. Plus, you know, I live in Hawaii half the year. My brother was paralyzed and marijuana has been a very important part of his life because if he didn't use it, Percocet, Xana, I mean, he was a zombie. And so I decided to try to legalize medical marijuana. And I missed the first time by a fraction. And I came back and did it again and passed it with 71% of the world. And then I believe the reason this country is so mad is that the have-nots are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I believe one day, we don't think it could happen. Marie Antoinette didn't think it could happen. Batista didn't think it could happen. The czar didn't think it. You push people so far, 
they'll just come take your shit because nothing from nothing equals nothing. If your kid's hungry, people are leaving islands in cardboard boats because nothing from nothing equals nothing. So I believe that the issue of our day is income inequality. So I say, you know what? I've already passed marijuana. I believe in the minimum wage. I passed the minimum wage, which is hard in a state like Florida with 61% of a, a landslide. What that proved to me was that most of us agree on most things. But if you put an R or a D next to it, we don't agree except about 47% on one side and 47% on the other, and the 6% decide the best. So I did the marijuana for my brother. I did the minimum wage because I feel passionately. I pay all my people at least $15 an hour. And I think I wanted to prove to America and to other politicians, and I, and I think you'll see now, people are always talking about Florida's minimum wage. I think in this deep South, for that to have happened was a seismic shift, and now you're seeing businesses are voluntarily raising their wage to 16, 17. And I believe it's good politics for self-preservation, because if you don't, there will be a day where you'll be living in Mad Max where people will be coming into your house, taking your stuff because you get so desperate, you have no choice. So those have been the things I've done in Florida. Very gratifying. And it's worked out for me because I've been like on a crusade down in Florida for 10 years. Now, there's going to be some people that are, are watching this or listening to this, and they'll say, well, that's that's easy for him to say. It's easy for him to do. And, and a lot of what we talked about yesterday is the fact that everything worthwhile is an uphill climb. And it, it seems like everything you try to do, there's always some resistance or pushback against it. Like I even saw recently they're trying to cap the amount that you can actually donate to some of these causes and so on. If you could speak to just the friction that you've had to go up against to really get things done, and not just with the you know the marijuana or the minimum wage, but just even in growing the law firm. Well, look, there's always resistance. There's always vision blockers, I call them. There's always somebody trying to stop you from doing this. Anything that's worthwhile is not easy. But what I would say to that is this. Sam Walton had 10 rules. Number 10 was the most important. And what he said was, swim upstream. When you see people coming downstream, they're on these big floats, sucking on my ties, cocoa butter all over their fat asses, just rolling down the river. They don't know where they're going. They're just going somewhere fast and maybe over. But Sam Walton said, swim upstream. So you're in there swimming upstream. You're passing the people in the floats and the inner tubes sucking on the Mai Tais with the cocoa butter who may be going to their death. But once you get to the top, there's a very furrowed, fallowed soil. And when Sam Walton left downtown Ben Franklin and went out to a field and built a box, kind of a box like this, everybody said, you're crazy. But guess what? He swam upstream. And what I will tell you, Mike, is when people tell you you can't, that just means they can't. That doesn't mean you can't. That doesn't mean, that just means they won't. It doesn't mean you won't. And so when people say no, I have a saying, you know, no means yes. People tell me no, no means yes. And so you have to make sure that you understand that a lot of people are trying to stop you 
from being great because they know they can't be great. And misery loves company. So over the past year, I mean, a lot of businesses all across the country, many of them demolished, maybe even a lot of law firms seemingly in a position where they almost had to start over. I'm curious, if you had to start over tomorrow, what would you do differently? How would you approach it? If I had to start over, look, again, the first rule is work, 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 work. I'd probably do the same thing I've done. I would just, I'm going to outwork you. Nobody's going to outwork me. And I don't know what my business would be. You know, I would not want to be starting over competing against me right now. That would not be fun. But look, one of the things I did in my business, here's the thing that I think people need to worry about. Inside of our business, I told you there's other people who have other objectives. Their objective could be, I want to make X amount of dollars, and all I've got to do is settle X amount of cases. You got people up and down your hallways who are doing things different than you. The most consequential thing I did in my business was I built a software called Litify. That's a hard thing to do, build a software. And I built it on a Salesforce platform, and I built it in the cloud. Here's what I wanted. I wanted to see everything. When you walk down a law firm, you just see these rows and rows and rows of cabinets. What's in there? I wanted transparency and automation. What has transformed my business when the growth has gone crazy has been litified because now I can see everything. I can direct everything. I can see everything that's going on in Philadelphia, in Miami, because the greatest worry that I have and that everybody listening should have is that inside your firms, there are enemies from within. Some are intentional enemies and some are just sloths who want to cook out and golf on Friday instead of working. And so what I want to do with Litify, it was to make everybody do it my way every day. And when I started with that, once I was using it for myself, and then I, I rolled it out to the public, and we're selling them like hotcakes. There you go. No, I love it. So I know you don't spend a lot of time patting yourself on the back, but when you look back across you know, your life, you know, growing up poor in Kentucky to where you are today, your family, and so on, I mean, are, are you proud? I'm not proud. I would say that I am surprised. Because when I got to law school, somebody said to me, look, here's the deal. We're going to give you a salary of 100 grand and tied to COLA. I mean, it was unfathomable money. And as you get older, like I said, it's not about the money as much. I'm not the type of person that spends the way I make. I'm from Kentucky. I'd rather have cube steaks and, and green beans in a pressure cooker and cabbage and shit like that. Caviar, I don't understand that. People like, you know, eat this thousand dollar spoon of caviar. It's like, I'd rather eat a spoon of dog shit than, than to eat caviar. I don't know. I don't know what they all think about caviar. Why is that so good? Other than it's expensive. It's like, Hey, we're going to, you know, here's a spoon of shit, thousand bucks. Oh, thank you. And people are eating shit because it's expensive. I'd rather have a cube steak and, and, and cabbage, but I would say that I'm not proud of myself. I'm relieved because the most desperate feeling in the world, remember when you couldn't fill up a gas tank, you'd pull in and you'd get $2 worth of regular, not even the premium, or $3, and it moved the needle barely. When was the last time you didn't fill up? 
those little things like that that were part of your desperation. Your car conks out. In America, 40% of Americans have less than $400 in their savings. You turn on the car, it doesn't start, you may not fix it. You know, one time in Florida, our AC went down and we didn't get it fixed for three years. Hot as shit. So, you know, now if my AC ain't back up, you know, in like three hours, I got the, the air conditioner man is a friend of me. And I'm, I'm like, I'm texting him like, hey, if you don't have a tech, get over here yourself because I cannot be sweating out down here in Florida. I sweated for three years in Florida. So I'm relieved. I'm not proud of myself. And, uh, and that's why I try to, the best of my ability, I sign all my letters with faith without works is dead. Because I believe, I was with Johnny Cochran for a long time, and I was partners with him in some of his firms. And he used to tell us all the time, and I was a Paul Bear at his funeral, and he would tell us that you can do good and do well. And so the main thing I want to do, whether it's marijuana or minimum wage, Morgan Morgan Hunger Relief Center, I want to make sure that I take my good luck and my good fortune and that I give it back in some form or fashion because I believe the other secret to life is gratitude. And if you're not thankful, I hate ingrates. And so I'm going to always be grateful to God or whoever, whatever made this happen. Well, thank you, John. I, I really appreciate this. The people watching, I bet John surprised you a little bit. If you've, if you've never heard John speak, if you had a certain perspective of what John would be like, or if, you, if you've seen him on TV or his billboards. So I, I appreciate you being so open and transparent. You're very welcome. Congratulations on your success. You've done amazing things here. Thank you. For everybody watching, you need to come here. It's like coming to Disney World. I want to give a huge thank you to John Morgan for taking the time to speak with us at the Evolve Summit. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when John said that when somebody tells you that you can't do something, that really means that they can't, and only you can truly limit your ambition. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit, and you know what, maybe more than one. For more information on our fireside chat with John Morgan, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. And join us next time for a deep dive into firm culture as special guest host Jessica Mogul sits down with the most successful law firms in the nation to discuss what they're doing to align their organizations and build a culture of success. Culture is sort of the way you start your firm in a way that you want it to be when you're done. So if you don't have those ingredients, if you don't have that foundation or that baseline, you can throw in whatever you want, but it's not going to be right. From culture is what you start with so that when you grow it, it grows properly. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.